Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Part of the Mosaics movement last week, we talked about we had taken a team to the Mosaics Global Conference uh, in Dallas and this is a movement of which you are part of helping churches to become more multi-ethnic and, and economically diverse so that we can live out what God says. It's not our idea. It's God's idea. What God says about what the church looks like in Revelation 7-9, which is people of every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping God together, lifting his praises as we've done here today so that he would be glorified so he's widening the circle that way. Pastor Steve Furr, another teaching pastor, is teaching at Grandview United Methodist Church this morning. Um, this is a, a church led by a young pastor who's part of one of the Mosaics cohorts that Pastor Chip and Mark DeMaz lead. So you guys are pretty busy. Did I just go on? Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm on and ready to rock. So we're, we're in, a, in a teaching series called From Tablet to Table and Tablet means these little guys, our iPhones, our smartphones, our iPads, our tablets, our Kindles. And to, to go looking from being attached to our devices to being at table with one another, the first message was bring back the table. Last week, Pastor Chip talked about table invitations. And who's invited to the table? And everyone, but we know that's not true. So how do we help everyone come to the table? And today we're we're talking about, did you see him at the table for this amazing story of the disciples on the way to Emmaus and their encounter with Jesus? And this is one of the three resurrection stories in, in Luke's gospel. And this is still taking place, by the way, on Easter. Could you guys start my clock, please? And um, so it, it takes place on Easter, and it's just one of three resurrection stories that Luke shares. Now, we know there were many more because the next, uh, the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, says that Jesus was seen for 40 days after the resurrection. So there must have been dozens of experiences. So these must be important. Luke wants us to see something, to learn something, to experience something through these encounters. And this encounter, when the disciples are walking to Emmaus, and they run into Jesus, and they don't even recognize him. I want to take us a little bit further in this scripture. So verses 28 through 35. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us 
while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Do you see him at the table? And why did Luke tell this story? And I think it's, he wants us to learn about spiritual depression, spiritual blindness, and then how we can encounter the risen Christ, first through the word and second through the table. So the spiritual depression, you see that they are downcast. And not only that, when Jesus asked them what's going on, and of course he knows what's going on. He was there. And, but he's very patient with them, at least to begin with. And he, when he asked them that question, what do they do? They're downcast, and they stop in their tracks. And I think part of why they were so spiritually depressed is because they don't know the resurrection really happened yet. They've heard the accounts from the women, but women didn't have much credence, shall we say. So who knows if they were making that up. And so they were living life without a sense of the reality of the resurrection. And if you live that way, you're going to be downcast. You're going to be stopped in your tracks. Because if we say when there's life, there's hope, if there's no life, if you believe that life ends when Jesus is crucified, it ends there. If you believe that life ends when we leave this earth and we just go in a hole in the ground and that's it, then of course we'll be spiritually depressed. And so we want to live in the, in the light and the hope of the resurrection. And God calls us to that. But they were also spiritually blind. And they were spiritually depressed and blind all at once, really, because they didn't recognize Jesus. Now, it's easy for us, right, to say, boy, those guys were so dumb. Like, how could they not know it was Jesus? They were with him for three years. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen the miracles. And yet they didn't recognize him. They were spiritually blind. And I wonder if part of it was that he, Jesus in this scene is so extraordinarily ordinary. He's just another guy. It made me think about, there was a story a, a while back now, about 12 years ago, about a man who was in a subway in D.C. He had a violin and, you know, he's... Uh, is it called busking, husking, musking? I don't know. <laughs> busking, thank you. He was trying to make money playing, and um, he looked like an ordinary guy. He's wearing a Washington Nationals cap. He's wearing a sweatshirt. And so in the course of about 45 minutes, he collected a whopping total of 32 bucks. But you know who this guy was? His name was Joshua Bell. He was an acclaimed violinist who had just performed a concert three days before in Boston where the cheapest ticket was $100. The violin he was playing was a $3 million Stradivarius. And people just walked by. He was playing this amazing music. People just walked by. They didn't recognize him. And that's how it was with the disciples and Jesus. They were spiritually blind. They didn't. They didn't notice him. They didn't see him. But there's another reason, I think, that they were spiritually depressed and down. There's a verse we didn't read just because there were so many verses, but in Luke 24, 21, it says, but we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. 
we had hoped. Spiritual depression comes when we hope for the wrong things. When we come to church thinking, we hope that it'll fix my relationship. We hope that I'll get a better job. I hoped that God would fix that problem in my life because I've come to God as a fix-it man. I haven't come to God as a savior. And so they were coming thinking that Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, and they were thinking of redemption in a political way to free them from political bondage. But Jesus has a much bigger picture, the redemption that he offers. And so they were looking at, at something that ultimately couldn't satisfy them. The great writer C.S. Lewis talks about, I'm sorry, the, the tyranny of the false absolute. When you put anyone or anything in the place of where God should be, you're continually going to be disappointed because you're going to say, but I thought, but I hoped, and it's not going to happen because only God can satisfy. Only God can bring that fulfillment. Only God can do it. And so they don't see God, they don't see Jesus because it's so ordinary. And I think part of why Luke tells this story is because it can be true for us right now. We can be walking along in our mess and saying, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? We think he's nowhere to be found, and he's right next to us. He's walking beside us, just like he was with those disciples. And I think Luke is telling us that story because this is true for us right now. This is the resurrection story that we can experience. Now, today, here, right here. Jesus may have been walking alongside you and you may be expecting fireworks or some kind of big experience just like with resurrected Jesus. They probably thought he'd be like 20 feet tall and glowing and, you know, angels buzzing around like little bees and, and well, probably not that, but, um, but they had these grandiose visions and then it was just Jesus, a guy wearing a Nationals baseball cap and a sweatshirt. Nobody knew. And so... That's true for us too. And sometimes it's only when we look back that we see that Jesus has been in our life. And I know that's true for me in the many, many years I was away from God. But then when I came to Christ and I looked back, I could see him pursuing me. I could see those influences. I could see those people. And it wasn't fireworks and it wasn't magic, but it was the presence of God made known afterwards. And so that's how Jesus comes to us. And then he's very patient with them, but then suddenly he says to them that they're foolish of heart and they're just not paying attention. They're slow to believe. And then he begins to open the scriptures. And in Luke 24, 27, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Here's the key. He's not just explaining the scriptures. This isn't just going to a Bible study where you're exegeting, and that's good. There is no wrong way to read the Bible because the Bible has power because it's the living word of God. So however you read it, that's awesome. But Jesus is teaching them something else. They knew the Bible very well, the Bible that we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. But he comes to them, and he shows it to them through the lens of himself from Moses, through the prophets, through the law, that Jesus is interweaved through all of that. 
And if you read the Bible with those eyes, afterwards they said, weren't our hearts burning within us? Now, I think there's a part of that so that's sort of CYA. Can I say that? Oh, you don't even know what it means. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure their hearts were burning, but it's almost like afterwards, oh my God, that was Jesus. Yes, of course. Oh, my heart was so burning. I was having an experience. I shouldn't doubt them. Anyway, we digress. But so Jesus is, you know, when you can't remember what you're saying, you can always say the word Jesus. So, <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus says the Bible's about him, right? We, we tend to think it's about us. And Tim Keller, the great um, preacher and teacher, I can't say it better than this, so I'm going to read what he says. He says, there is in the end only two ways to read the Bible. It's about me or it's about Jesus. In other words, is it basically about what I must do or is it basically about what he has done? If I read David and Goliath, and he, can, he goes through this with many different biblical examples, but if I read David and Goliath, as basically giving me an example, then the story's really about me. I must summon the courage and the strength and faith to fight the giants in my life. But if I read David and Goliath, it's basically about Jesus and salvation through Jesus. I can see that the story's really about him. And until Jesus fights the real giants, which are sin and law and death, I don't have, I'm not equipped to fight the giants in my life of discouragement and failure and brokenness. Only two ways to read the Bible, as if it's about me or as if it's about Jesus. And, and so Jesus gives them this master class, like the best Bible study ever. They still don't recognize him. And so they're going along, you heard the story, and they get to, it's getting to be nighttime, and they practice hospitality. They urge Jesus strongly to come with them, to stay with them, to eat with them. And in the culture of that time, you know, you had a sort of like, oh, no, no, I don't want to impose. And they're like, oh, yes, please stay. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yes, please stay. And finally, like, okay, I'll stay. And he says he will stay, and he comes in, and the one who has become, who came in as the guest, very quickly becomes the host. And they recognize him. And so they asked him in as a stranger, as a weary traveler. And then when he broke the bread with them, they saw it. Matthew 24, 35. I'm going to read a little bit from the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to eat. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So there's something there, I think, in the fact that they welcomed Jesus as a stranger, not knowing who he was, and Jesus makes himself known. But there's another part to that. Jesus is showing up when the two are talking, and then he comes to them at the table where they're gathered together. Did you ever notice that Jesus tends to show up when people are together? He shows up here. He shows up in small groups. Many of you were part of the I Said This, You Heard That small groups we had this fall. And many of you are part of ongoing small groups. And some of our small groups make sharing a meal together, being at table together, a regular part 
of how they meet. And so I, I asked them, a few of the people in those groups, to say why they do that. And uh, Pastor Scott Blevins started a, a small group based on the, the book that we kind of drew the title from, From Tablets to Table by Leonard Sweet, and they're meeting on Monday's night over food. Um, and then there's other groups that we have. There's a foundation group led by Joseph Paramble. And I asked him, you know, why, why do you eat together? And he says in Acts 2.42, the disciples gathered together for fellowship, to pray together, and to eat together. So that when we eat together, we're following what the Bible invites us to do. And I, I by the way, they meet on Wednesdays at 7, and they have incredible spreads if you ever want to, you know, and they remember and celebrate through bread and wine all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. I asked Kimberly Chapman Wynn, who leads our multi-ethnic conversations, and they always end their session. They meet for nine weeks, and then they have a big meal together, and everybody's invited who's ever been part of any of the conversations. And Kimberly said that part of why they end with a meal is that at the table, everybody's equal. At the table, we can share our hurts and our hopes. At the table, we can be reconciled, meet new friends, and our table gets larger, widen the circle, expand the table as people come. And we rise from the table with hugs, forgiveness, unity, and new beginnings. And then there's a small group I'm part of. Um, Dave Jezik and I are kind of co-conspirators on that one, and there's always a meal in that group. And Dave talks about how eating together is a great unifier and behind the scenes. So for people that like to prepare food, it's a gift that they can give for those who receive. They feel honored and humbled that someone has cooked for them. It's a way to have conversation about, oh, yeah, this was my aunt's recipe, or my kids really like this one, or I learned this, one for, this recipe from somebody else. It's a way to build community. And it also can be a great icebreaker when you're gathering together before you delve into more serious subjects. So Jesus tends to show up when we're together, and Jesus makes known to us, is made known to us at the table. But more than that, he gives us a pattern for living. Did you notice how he comes to the table in verse 30? He says, when he comes, he takes the bread and he breaks it, or he thanks God for it, and then he breaks it, and then he gives it. This is a fourfold pattern, four verbs that Jesus models for us, and it is in that pattern, we see that in the feeding of the 5,000, he did the same thing. He takes and he thanks and he breaks and he gives. At the Last Supper, he follows the same pattern. He takes and he thanks and he breaks and he gives. Over and over, the Last Supper, he does the same thing. Take, thank, break, give. And he gives us a pattern for our lives as well as he calls us to live that way. Take. He took his life with the Father, came down to be with us so that we would have life. He invites us to take of him the very bread of life. And this isn't passive, friends, because we can't just, we, we have to take it. In Philippians 3.21, Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. Do you know that God has taken hold of you for a purpose? Do you know 
that there's a calling that only you can fulfill. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some stories only you can hear. And there's some hurts only you can heal. God has called you, but you have to take hold of it. You have to be active. Jesus takes. You have to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of you in order to fulfill your calling and his plan and his promise for your life. And Jesus could be offering us life all day long, but if we don't receive it, he's not going to push himself on you. He's gentle, and he will pursue you, but in a loving way. And he will never force you to be in a relationship with him. So we must take. And so I want to ask the question, are you taking hold of that? Are you taking what God is offering? That's a question to think about. Thank. Jesus thanks his Father. It's a form of blessing when we gather at our tables at holidays, at Thanksgiving. And our goal here at Garfield is that no one has a Thanksgiving alone. That we can, if, if someone is uh, kind of loose for Thanksgiving, we want to find a place where you can be. And I'm going to look to Pastor Chip to figure out the magic of how that will all happen. <laughs> but we will make it happen. We don't want anybody to have Thanksgiving alone. And we gather and we say a blessing. And we're giving God thanks for what he has given to us. And so we are built to be grateful. The, the attitude, the stance of a Christian is gratitude. There's a, a word from the ancient liturgy of the church. It says, it is a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to God. Always and everywhere. And it's popular now. You've probably heard about keeping a gratitude journal or saying the five things you're grateful for before you go to bed. And these are, This is a good thing to do. And, and if, you, if you don't want to do it for theological reasons, there's all kinds of practical reasons. There's been so much research about gratitude and the positive effects that it has on us. And um, research shows that people who practice gratitude have more energy, optimism, social connections, and more happiness than those who don't. They're also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or addicted. They earn more money, sleep better, exercise more, and to top it all off, they're more resistant to viruses. <laughs> so it's a good and joyful thing to give thanks in all circumstances. And so my question is, as we are in this season going into Thanksgiving and just a few days. Are we living life as a, out of a posture of gratitude? Are we thankful for what Christ has done for us? And then we break. We take, we thank, we break. You know what? You can't share the bread until it's broken. You have to break the bread before you can give it to someone else. You can't eat it when it's a big loaf. It has to be broken, and Jesus comes to be broken on the cross for us so that we would have life and have life abundant and eternal. There's something that breaks, and we're all broken one way or another. And God uses that brokenness to serve and heal and give to others. And sometimes we don't come to God until we're at a breaking point. That's a time when we're most humble. 
And sometimes God wants to break things in us. Those things that impede us from coming closer to him. It's a rich, rich word. But God breaks us so that we can come to him. He breaks himself so that we can receive it. So the question I want to ask is, is the brokenness that Jesus experienced for us making us be willing to be broken for others, to sacrifice for them? And finally, give. Jesus gives away what he's broken to be a miracle in the lives of others. Jesus calls us to a life of giving. It's a response. If we, and we can't be great, generous people if we haven't taken and thanked and experienced the brokenness and, and been changed by the brokenness of Jesus. We can't be this kind of church without your generosity. We talked about that earlier at the offering that we need to be people who give of our resources and our time and our talents and even give of our forgiveness when things don't go our way, when somebody hurts our feelings. That's a form of generosity, forgiveness. We need to give back love when we receive something else, when we receive hate. And so we want to give that and We really can't be generous unless we understand this whole fourfold process, these four verbs, these, this pattern for living that Jesus gives for us, that he models for us, and that we can follow. There's a story that Pastor Chip has told here, and I was thinking of it recently about when he was a district superintendent, they were doing a new church start, and there was a man in the community that um, was involved in, in helping with that and some of the vision strategies, and he wanted to give something, but he didn't know how much. So he said to Pastor Chip, how much should I give? And he said, I can't tell you that. And so Chip said, but you should give in response to what God has given you, as a response to what he's poured upon you. And so he went off and he had a yellow pad and he wrote the pluses and the minuses, you know, all the things he was grateful to God for. And, and then he couldn't think of anything on the other side. So he went in his office and he wrote a check for $150,000 as a response to what God has, had done for him. Giving is an active thing. And Jesus gave everything. And so my question for us is, what can we give to others representing that gift that, that God gives to us? How can we be generous people living out our faith? And so as we close, I'm going to ask you to join with me. It's not Communion Sunday, but I want us to experience this together. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to use your body, your hands. We're incarnate people. And think about this together, and we'll pray through this. So... Lord, we put on our hands so that we can take what you've offered to us so freely. Help us to take hold of that for which you've taken hold of us and take hold of that understanding as Jesus, as you open the scriptures to your disciples, open them in us that our hearts might burn too. And Lord, we, we thank you. We open our hands in thanks and praise and thanksgiving. Because you give, you're the giver of every good gift. That's what your Bible says. And so we're thankful for that. 
And then we know that you were broken for us and that the bread must be broken if anyone's to eat. And so, Lord, we recognize our brokenness and we're grateful that you were broken so that we would be made whole. And then finally, Lord, we give. We open our hands out to give all that we are and all that we have because you gave the greatest gift of all. You said you so loved the world that you gave. You gave your one and only son. And so, Lord, we give of ourselves, we give of our praise, we give of our worship in these moments, Lord. Thank you for showing us yourself in the breaking of the bread. Be with us as we come to table with one another and share life together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank Terry um, for just pouring out and just positioning us to be thankful to one another and for what God has given. I was thinking about uh, Jesus at that table, and he gave, like Terry said, he gave thanks. He took the bread, and he gave thanks. Then he broke it. And it was only when he broke the bread that the disciples realized that it was him, sweetly broken for you and for me. I pray this week that God would open your eyes, that you would invite others to that table because there's a world out there that needs him, that's broken, that needs the presence of God and that needs to feel hope. I don't know what road you're on or what path you're on. Maybe you're dealing with depression today, addiction, maybe even grieving a loss. But when we begin to talk about Jesus, he shows up. And not only does he shows up, he is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Go out knowing that when we invite Jesus to the table and he breaks that bread, he is no longer a guest, but the host. Go in that, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed.